This podcast is brought to you by Yeshivat Tekoa under the auspices of the Steinsalt Center. The Steinsalt Center is responsible for all the activities of Rabbi Adin Ebeni Israel Steinsaltz. Its goal is to promote the Rabbi's mission of Let My People Know, making a world of Jewish knowledge accessible to all. The center's activities include publishing the Rabbi's writings and teachings, establishing educational programs and centers, and much more. For more information, please Google the Steinsalt Center or enter the link in the podcast description. The Thirteen-Petaled Rose, a discourse on the essence of Jewish existence and belief. Written by Rabbi Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz. Chapter 3. The Soul of Man The human soul, from its lowest to its highest levels, is a unique and single entity, even though it is many-faceted. In its profoundest being, the soul of man is a part of the divine, and in this respect is a manifestation of God in the world. To be sure, the world as a whole may be viewed as a divine manifestation, but the world remains as something else than God, while the soul of man in its depths may be considered to be a part of God. Indeed, only man, by virtue of his divine soul, has the potential and some of the actual capacity of God himself. This potential expresses itself as the ability to go beyond the limits of a given existence, to move freely and choose other paths, enabling man to reach the utmost heights or to plumb the deepest hells. It is, in other words, the power to will and to create. Man's free will will thus derive its unique potential from the fact that it is a part of the divine will without limit and without restriction. Man's creative power is also derived from the same divine power to create things that never existed before, to destroy things already in existence, and to fashion new forms. In this sense, too, man is made in the image of God. Understandably, the divine does not appear in man in all the infinity of being. And we speak only of an aspect of God, or of a divine spark, as constituting the essence of the inner life of man. However veiled and masked in its broader context, the human race may also be considered the manifestation of God in the world. And each and every person is an intrinsic part of this divine source of light, the point of essence, which essential point and source is known at a certain level as the Shekhinah, 
and at another level as Knesset Israel, the divine vitalizing power giving life to the world. Knesset Israel is the pool in which all the souls in the world are contained as a single essence. Although it does not reveal itself as such, for in the world only a glimmer of the sparks of holiness in certain people is revealed. Every soul is thus a fragment of the divine light, as a spark, a part containing something of the whole. The soul's essential wholeness cannot be achieved except through effort, through work, with the greater whole. Nevertheless, in spite of all the bonds uniting the individual soul, either with a higher source or with every other soul, each particular spark, each individual soul is unique and special in terms of its essence, its capacity, and what is demanded of it. No two souls coincide in their actions, their functions, and their paths. No one soul can take the place of another, and even the greatest of the great cannot fill the special role, the particular place of another, that may be the smallest of the small. From this notion, incidentally, derives Judaism's profound respect for human life. The life of a person is something that has no possible substitute or exchange. Nothing and no one can take its place. The soul as a primal existence, that is, prior to its connection with the world of action or the physical world, is thus already a distinct spiritual entity in that it is a special combination of various sefirot, from different worlds. No soul belongs only to one sefirah, even though in every soul there is a tendency to manifest more of one sefirah than of others. Generally, souls are the product of combinations among sefirot, and there may be hundreds and thousands of such combinations in a vast variety of forms in a single soul. Human souls may be said to differ according to the difference in the sefirot, making up the combination and in the combination itself, as well as in the level of the worlds out of which the soul is manifested, all of which is still in the realm of the spiritual and the abstract. The principal action of the soul, however, its paramount importance lies not in its abstractness, its remoteness from the physical world, but precisely in the world of living creatures, in its contact with matter. Because within the extremely complex system of relations between the soul and the world of material substance as a whole, especially relations with its own body, the soul is able to reach far higher levels than it can in its abstract state of separate essence in what is known as the paradisical state outside the body. The process of the soul's connection with the body, called the descent of the soul into matter, is, from a certain perspective, the soul's profound tragedy. 
but the soul undertakes this terrible risk as a part of the need to descend in order to make the desired ascent to hitherto unknown heights. It is a risk and a danger because the soul's connection with the body and its contact with the material world, where it is the only factor that is free, unbounded by the determination of physical law and able to choose and move freely, make it possible for the soul to fall and, in falling, to destroy the world. Indeed, creation itself and the creation of man is precisely such a risk, a descent for the sake of ascension. The soul is, of course, immaterial, as not only beyond matter, but also beyond what is considered spirit. That is, it is beyond whatever the intellect at its highest can reach and understand or make clear to itself. The soul is thus not to be conceived as a certain defined essence caged in the body or even as a point of immaterial substance, but rather as a continuous line of spiritual being stretching from the general source of all the souls to beyond the specific body of a particular person. The connection between the body and the soul is like what occurs at the end of a line of light when a dark body is illuminated. And because the soul is not a single point in space, it should be viewed not as a single existence having one quality or character, but as many existences on a variety of spiritual levels, one next to the other, above and beyond one another. Thus, to begin with, the soul gives the body its life and being, that vital being which distinguishes anything alive and real. Beyond this, it provides the individual person with his special character and thereby fixes the way to participate in the reality of creaturely life in the world. In other words, a human soul at its most primary level animates existence in terms of life force, movement, and propagation of the species. And then, on another level, it acts as the source of man's capacity to think, to imagine, to dream, to contemplate. The divine spark that is the soul thus vitalizes the human body with the essence of the life of living creatures, but in a manner far more complex and potent than in other forms of life. In spite of this added complexity of mind and emotion, this level of the soul is called the animal soul, in the sense that it is parallel to the souls of other living creatures and functions, thinks, and is aware of itself as being concentrated in a particular vessel, the vessel of the body. At the same time, as we have seen, this soul, the primary natural animal soul of man, is not necessarily connected only with animal needs or with physical aspects of life, being as it is the source of all those aspects or qualities peculiar to one as a person. At a higher level, above this primal soul, 
there exists in every human being a divine soul. This is the first spark of consciousness, beyond that of the zoological species, beyond even the consciousness of a higher or more developed animal, and is directly connected to divine essence. This connection of the divine soul is the form of a line drawn from above, extending from the primal level called soul, which exists in one form or another in every Jew. It exists in each and every individual being, hidden and veiled as a spark of higher perception, of a superior aspiration, and touches the higher level, which is spirit. This level corresponds to the higher world above our own known world of action, called the world of formation. In other words, that level of the soul of man known as spirit corresponds in its inner essence to the level of an angel in the world of formation. Beyond this, there is a third level called neshama, higher soul, which corresponds to the level of creation, which is still higher and more pure. Above this, above the level of neshama, there is a level called Chaya, which corresponds to the actions of the forces of the Sefirot in the world of emanation. And beyond all these, the most inward point of the divine spark is the one called Yechida, which may be considered the point of contact between the soul and the very essence of the divine. Just as the union of body and soul gives life to the body, so does it wrap the soul in material substance, providing it with the powers of the physical body. This is not a one-way process. The soul not only gives something to the body, vital force and life, it also gets something from the body, from the body's connection with matter and form, its physical capacities, its channels of perception, and its various links with both the material and the immaterial worlds. In this way, the soul is, of course, limited and restricted by the body. But it also draws on a new form of being, a different point of view. The contact and mutual attraction between body and soul creates a contingency, a unique situation, generating the human self, which is neither body nor soul, but a merging of the two. This conjoined self can achieve great things, giving expression to the glory of the body in being raised from the inertness of matter and to the exhilaration of the soul's response to this mutual contact. Except that the self is not a particular point, an intersection in space, or a specific essence, and so differs for all men and even for the same man himself at various stages of his development. In the first stages of life, for instance, the existence of the self is concentrated almost entirely in the life of the body, while the higher levels of mind and spirit do not show themselves except in unconscious form. With growth, with the development of the physical and spiritual powers, 
a person becomes increasingly aware of the higher essence of his soul in accordance with his capacities. A person may realize his spiritual potential as a man and go beyond if he makes the effort to the realm of the divine in him. But always there will remain within his life and consciousness powers drawn from his body, from the contact of his body with matter and the various physical and spiritual beings in the world. Part of these are in the self as forms of consciousness and part are not conscious. For the unconscious essences of being persist also in the higher aspects of the soul. The progress toward perfection, therefore, depends on one's capacity to raise the self to the level of an identification with a higher mind beyond that of contact between matter and spirit. It is an ascent of higher consciousness which proceeds from realms of the spirit to the soul and in extremely rare instances to still higher levels of higher, which corresponds to the level of revelation in prophecy when the self receives power and plentitude directly and consciously from the world of emanation. Thus, consciousness, assuming ever new identification along the lifeline of the soul, is the way of man's ascent to perfection. The more one rises, the closer one comes to the realization of the highest purpose of one's being. To be sure, only very few people are ever privileged to reach these highest levels. And even when they do reach them, it is not to remain, but to experience an occasional flash of awareness of the higher existence within. Only the greatest of men achieve this level where the self exists in terms of consciousness in the world of emanation. The rest of mankind lives on the level of the world of action, or scarcely above it. They can rise a little, if indeed they manage to do so at all, only by virtue of their choice, their deeds, their sincerest efforts. Since the soul is of the inner essence of the Sefirot, it must necessarily manifest the structures of the ten Sefirot in real life. For the ten Sefirot are the instruments of the supreme omnipotence. Thus, when man lives in a state of perfection, without any distortion of his being, his soul and the relations between his soul and his body reflect the whole world and the ten supreme sphirot, and he can say, Yet in my flesh shall I see God, as is written in Job chapter 19, verse 26. Man in his purity should be able to perceive the whole order of relations between God and the world, and the order of relations within the Sephirot, as this is reflected in the microcosm of his human existence. Just as they do in the higher world, the ten Sephirot exist in the human soul, and from their mutual interrelations are derived and manifested all the broad span of thoughts, feelings, and experiences of man. Thus, the first three sefirot assert the aspects 
of pure consciousness. Hochma, expressing the power of original light, is that which distinguishes and creates in the basis of intuitive grasp. Bina, expressing the analytical and synthetic power of the mind, builds and comprehends forms and probes the meaning of that which comes from the sefirah of Hochma and Dat, expressing the crystallization of awareness in terms of conclusions and the abstract ascertaining of facts is that which enables consciousness to make a transition from one form of existence to another, thereby ensuring its continuity. Then, following these are the three sefirot of the higher emotions, chesed, gvurah, and tiferet. Chesed as grace and love is the inclination toward things, the desire for or attraction to beings, the outgoing flow and opening up to the world, that which gives of itself, whether in terms of will or affection or relation, and, in giving, opens up to the sefirah of gvurah or strength. Gvurah is thus an inward withdrawal of forces, a concentration of power which provides an energy source for hate, fear, and terror, as well as for justice, restraint, and control. Tiferet is harmony and compassion, as well as beauty, being a synthesis or a balancing of the higher powers of attraction and repulsion, and leads to moral as well as to aesthetic acceptance of the world. From these we proceed to the three sefirot that act directly on the actual world of experience. Netzah, Chod, and Yesod. Netzah is the will to overcome, the profound urge to get things done. Chod, in striving to achieve and attain that which is desired, is also the power to repudiate the obstacles that rise from reality and to persevere. Yesod is the power of connection, the capacity and the will to build bridges, make contacts, and relate to others, especially in the way this is done with teacher, father, and other figures of meaning and authority. Finally, the sefira of Malchut is the realization or living through of this potential in the essential being. It is a transition from soul to outer existence, to thought and to deed. It also affects the transmutation of consciousness back to Keta, the first and highest of the Sefirot, which is also the essence of will and contains in itself all the higher powers that activate the soul from above. These basic powers combine and work together. Two or more of them bring about an event or activate something and together create the thoughts and feelings of man in all their enormous subtlety and complexity. Thus, every single thought, emotion, or action is a result of the combination of forces of one or another or all of the sefirot, every compounding of which expresses a particular essence, being, or creation in the world. The soul of man functions through its instrument or vessel, which is the body.
Through it and with it, the soul thinks, perceives, feeds and acts. Through it and by it, the soul has to fulfill its double function in reality. First, it has to perform a certain task in the process of perfecting the outer world, or at least that part of the world to which it is destined. And second, its task is to raise itself. But these tasks are not necessarily separate. They are accomplished simultaneously, for the physical world contains in itself a higher essence, higher forces in which, even though hidden and distorted, there exist elements of the original divine formlessness. It is with these higher forces that the soul, in its work of tikkun or correction, is united, and in thus raising a portion of the world, it is also raised and uplifted. The relationship between body and soul, and altogether between the spirit of things and their corporeality, may be expressed by the example of a rider on horseback. A rider who is in control and guides his steed can go much farther than he can go on foot. How aptly, then, does the image of the Messiah as a poor man riding on a donkey describe the human predicament, the divine spark born and guiding, the physical donkey bearing up and waiting for guidance and power. The path of Tikkun, the course plotted for the soul's sojourn in the world, is generally found in the Torah, which is supposed to be a guiding instrument. For the Torah is not only a higher revelation, it is a practical guide to direct man on the way, showing him what to do and how to do it, in his task of repairing the world. Within this general course or task of raising the level of the universe, each and every soul has to find its own particular way, its own place, and the specific objects relating to its existence. Therefore, it has been said that each of the letters of the Torah has some corresponding soul. That is to say, every soul is a letter in the entire Torah, and has its own part to play. The soul that has fulfilled its task, that has done what it has to do in terms of creating or repairing its own part of the world and realizing its own essence, can wait after death for the perfection of the world as a whole. But not all the souls are so privileged. Many stray for one reason or another, Sometimes a person does not do all the proper things, and sometimes he misuses forces and spoils his portion and the portion of others. In such cases, the soul does not complete its task and may even itself be damaged by contact with the world. It has not managed to complete that portion of reality which only this particular soul can complete, and therefore, after the death of the body, the soul returns and is reincarnated in the body of another person and again must try and complete what it failed to correct or what it injured in the past. The sins of man are not eliminated so long as this soul does not complete that which it has to complete, 
from which it may be seen that most souls are not new. They are not in the world for the first time. Almost every person bears the legacy of previous existence. Generally, one does not obtain the previous self again, for the soul manifests itself in different circumstances and in different situations. What is more, some souls are compounded of more than one single former person and share parts of a number of persons. A great soul is most usually reincarnated, not in one single body, but branches out, participating in a number of people, each of whom have to satisfy different aspects of existence. In spite of this incalculable complexity, the soul will be made up of the same constituent elements and will have to complete those uncompleted tasks left over from the previous cycle. Therefore, the destiny of a person is connected not only with those things he himself creates and does, but also with what happens to the soul in its previous incarnations. The encounters and events of life, its joys and sorrows, are influenced by one's previous existence. One's existence is a continuity, the sustaining of certain fundamental essence, and certain elements may rise to the surface which do not seem to belong to the present, which a person has to complete or fix or correct. A portion of the world it is his task to put right in order for him to raise his soul to its proper level. And this struggle of the souls is also the struggle and way of the world towards its redemption. As the souls return and strive to correct the world and vindicate themselves at a certain level of this overall tickle or correction, they reach their highest peak. Then the greatest obstacles are behind the human race, and it can go forward towards its perfection with sure steps and without the legacy of suffering inherited from previous existences and previous sins. This is the beginning of salvation, which is the time of the Messiah. In this manner, man proceeds until that stage is reached when all the souls return, each to its own self, when every self in the world will enter into a new life, in complete fusion with the higher forces of the soul on all levels, and of the body manifesting all the potential powers it contains. This level of the perfection of all humanity, in which a new relation will exist between body and soul, and the world will be whole with itself, and it is called heaven, or the next world. It is the goal toward which all the souls of men, in discharging their private and specific tasks in life, aspire and strive. Thank you.